Start recording. It's recording now. Recording on your side? Yes. Okay. This app is not ideal. Um, so, oh no, that's McDonald's. That's trademarked. We can't do that. Um, welcome back to This Week in Ghost. It has been six months since our last podcast. We're doing this weekly thing well. Hannah, your thoughts? I think This Week in Ghost is appropriate. Excellent. Did we used to have theme music? I feel like we had theme music at one point. I think you made something up, yeah. Hmm. Maybe that can be a theme. We'll just change the theme music each time, you know, twice a year. <laughs> well, I mean, you get a whole week. I mean, six months, I mean, a week to compose it, so. Exactly. <sighs> so it will be, um, it will be fine. Yeah, we really should sort this out. The, the app that we used to record currently is uh, Zencaster.com, which is a great idea, but it has some shortcomings it's not ideal and then there's anchor.fm which is the ios app which is supposed to be amazing for just everything podcasting but in my experience it's kind of a one big bug fest so if anyone has any um recommendations for the easiest way in 2018 to record produce and export a podcast um comments below there are no comments below this is a podcast but send me a message on twitter would love to hear if there's something we're missing out on that would uh, make this easier that reminds me, last time we did this, we did it live on YouTube at the same time. Oh, that was a terrible idea. Yeah, that didn't work at all. No. Yeah. Well, it's a learning experience. <laughs> One step at a time with the steps six months apart. Um, anyway, today, though, we do actually have something specific to talk about. It has been five years since this, this whole thing began. Um, blog post just went live talking about uh, some of the biggest lessons that we've taken away in that time. And uh, yeah, we thought we'd have a, have, have a bit of a chat about it. We also asked, I asked people on Twitter for questions. What did they want to know um, from us after this five-year journey? And we've got uh, a pretty big list to go through, actually. You've so got we'll, an amazing, we'll dive into those. amazing response to that tweet. There were mm, so, many, yeah. so many good questions. So how, how do you feel overall after, after five years, Hannah, other than tired? I'd I, I just like to know where the last five years went. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely echo that. <laughs> but in general, I think um, we've definitely gone from the first couple of years being crazy to things being like slightly more stable and steady and comprehensible, I think. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I think at a certain point we, um, we got used to the notion of everything being slightly broken all the time, but just kind of learning to be okay with that. Uh, I think that's that's quite a significant milestone in the evolution of, of running any product or company. Yeah, I think we definitely um, had less stress when we stopped trying to focus on always shipping things that were perfect and realizing that it was fine to ship things that were broken as long as we fixed them quickly. There's also this... Um, this bias that everyone has toward thinking, toward the, the intimate knowledge of your own product and company and how broken everything is and how on the brink of, of falling apart <laughs> everything is. Disaster. Um, while simultaneously looking around at all your uh, competitors or colleagues or uh, peers and, and looking at their products and companies and thinking, my God, they've, everything is perfect. They've done it so well. Um, but our stuff is so terrible. And then eventually you realize through meeting more and more and more people who do the same thing as you, uh, that everyone else has that same opinion about their own stuff. Everyone is woefully ashamed and terrified that everything they've built is about to fall apart any second. And it's just the perception, much like a, a curated Instagram feed. You only see the highlights mm -hmm. in the, the marketing of other people's companies. You don't see all the 
dirty goings on in the background that actually keep the lights on. What was that YouTube video that was about this concept where they were talking about how when you look at your competitor's UI and you're like, oh my God, they've got these three features that we haven't got. And, but that your competitor's actually thinking, oh my God, we've got this feature that doesn't work and this one we wish had never shipped. And... Oh yeah, I think, uh, I think there was a talk with Des Trainer, Intercom's Des Trainer. And that's the one. And um, Y Combinator, yeah, that's was really good. Mm. Definitely. I so um, we, could, we, could, we could go on about this all day, but, and I think we can and we should in this podcast, but we should probably frame our, uh, our general discussion around the questions that we've had come in, because there's so many of them, I'm concerned we won't have enough time to get through all of them. So should we, yep. should we start meandering down that general path and then bring in stories and anecdotes along the way? Indeed. Let's do that. Okay. Um, I'll kick things off. Uh, so this, this was opened to everyone on Twitter last week. I've tried to grab all of the questions. If I missed yours or I missed some, I'm sorry. I looked for as many as I possibly could and then just tried to group them together by people who ask similar things. Um, so the very first one we've got is from Owen Blom, who asks, it's still a difficult thing to understand for people. So how can you build a business on giving stuff away? And how do you build an open source community that's more than only programmers? Excellent questions. Yep. Do you want to start this one off? Mm -hmm. um, I think the how do you build a business on giving stuff away question is really interesting because that's the one that I think trips the most people up. Whenever I say we give all of our software away for free or um, we're a nonprofit, to anybody who isn't already in the know, those ideas are completely bonkers, right? And that's yeah. how we have done things from day one. Absolutely. I mean, in simple terms, for anyone who's not familiar with the whole concept of how it all works, we make a free app and then we have paid hosting. And it's as straightforward as that. You need hosting to run the app, but you can do that yourself. You can, you can kind of do that wherever you want. Um, but we give away the app for free. Another way you can think about it as a metaphor is uh, we give away houses, flat pack houses for free. We also have plots of land, which we sell, and you can build your house on there. In fact, we'll build it for you and we'll maintain it for you. But if you would rather do everything yourself, well, then you can take our house plans and materials that we supply for free and uh, go and set things up yourself. That's kind of the model. That's the, the overall business model. I haven't heard um, that analogy as, in a while. <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> As for how to build an open source community that's more than just programmers, that's hard. Um, well, I don't I think don't we've have... necessarily even done that ourselves. No, I was going to say, if you figure it out, let me know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone has, to be honest. I haven't seen an open source community, a real functional, this is clearly working extremely well, open source community that's more than just developers. Um, I think there are communities which are not open source, which work really well. Um, and there are developer communities which work really well, but I haven't seen a combination of both yet. So we'll keep working on it. We definitely, when we were the, like the shiny new thing five years ago, we first started doing open source. We, we had a few people who were QA engineers rather than developers. I think that's the closest mm. we've really gotten. Yeah. Uh, so next one is from, is from Jesse Hanley, my friend Jesse. Uh, hi, Jesse, how are you doing? He says, in the last five years, uh, which moments stand out as memorable whilst building Ghost. What stands out for you? Oh, um, the moment when in 2014, when the graph stopped going the wrong way. As in profitability. <laughs> yeah. When the runway stopped running out. Yeah. That's interesting. That one stands out. 
<laughs> as being the moment when I had to stop holding on to my ass for dear life. <laughs> I think we had that sense for a while, didn't we, of like impending doom. It was all going to fall apart. And then uh, when that happened, everything felt a little bit nicer. But kind of, yeah. I don't, I, I don't think I felt as doomy about it. I felt like we were on the right path. Oh, on the, just me then. That stands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because if you remember, we did hire... Was it two more people? Yeah, we had two more people ahead of profitability mm -hmm. when we could have just held on and hit it sooner. Yeah. But it was our growth was, was so stable that we decided to bring on a couple more people despite that, meaning it would take longer to hit break-even. Because I think, I think we could have actually hit break-even and profitability in six months, but we ended up doing it in 11. Yep. I think Which the is one record that, still, right? <laughs> st yeah, definitely. The one that stands out for me is um, still the Kickstarter campaign. I remember the first night of that sitting in a small bar in Austria with my phone propped up against a beer glass, just watching the total increase every two to three seconds. That was a very surreal moment. Yeah, um, I was in a, I was similarly in a bar in France. I think I was drunk and dancing on a table, waving my phone in the air, as opposed to watching it. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, other standout moments, I would say probably the, the big launches and the retreats, particularly Ghost 1.0, of course, that was one of the biggest ones we ever did. And, uh, and the retreats with the team, they, they always stand out as some of the most memorable times. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's a weird thing, but for me, the, all of the retreats and certainly certain moments on the retreats stand out more than anything. The moments with the team, which says something about being remote, I guess. Yeah, like Kevin doing shots of tequila oh. in a shark suit through his eyeball. Yeah. If anyone doesn't know what a tequila suicide is, <laughs> we, have, uh, we have video evidence. The night, the night around the campfire at the last retreat also stands out. That was yeah, that fun. was great. And being boiling in Dubai and just stuck in an apartment for air conditioning. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't stand out in the same way, but definitely stands out. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do the next one? Sure. Uh, the next one is from Dominic Schmidt, and he says, strategy would be interesting from the outside. It seems like you switch focus from regular blogger to enterprise or professional. Why and what does that mean? Great question. I mean, I think um, I think I touched on, on quite a lot of this in the blog post, so probably the bulk of it's covered. But in as a, as a whole, there's there's multiple angles to this. On on the one hand, professional writers or publishers have have more interesting use cases to build product for, and um, are generally willing to pay more for it. So there's there's simply more you can do for professionals than when targeting consumers. Um, and on the other side, from an economics point of view, uh, much like I talked about open source versus closed source, and a lot of the differences kind of between Ghost and Medium uh, really support this in general. So simple bloggers want the simplest thing. You really are better off on Medium if, if that's what you're looking for, because there's no real, real tangible way realistic, tangible way for an open source product to, to match that type of experience. So figuring that out over the years over the years and and making that conscious decision to try and target more professional uses and go after that flexibility and that power as opposed to the pure nice ease of use i think has been one of the most important changes of general product strategy and direction that we've ever made definitely also has um, um connotations about who our users are and what resources they have so I think our early, our, all of our early users were all develop, mostly developers themselves or you know, techies who, who were early adopters. 
Um, and then the people that we're looking for now are more people that are writers but have a team of developers or have developers to hand. So it's a slightly different concept of, of what we can build and who for. Definitely, yeah. Charles says, this is taking me back to the explicit web podcast days. <laughs> De definitely get points if you know what that is. Yep. Um, Han Hannah and I and our friend uh, Robin years ago used to run a podcast called Explicit Web. It wasn't very good. Um, much <laughs> like this one. <laughs> but we did it for fun. And that's uh, how we, I guess, the first project we all worked together on. Yep. You know, there were only eight episodes, weren't there? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was something terrible like that felt like a lot more it did didn't it <laughs> yeah uh yield hunter at trading noob great username uh asks for examples of people telling us what to do who were com who turned out to be completely wrong uh i think this is a great one any come to mind for you i've got i've got several um i think the ones that come to my mind the most are like the early days of people trying to convince us that we shouldn't go non-profit that we should take funding yeah, that's definitely one. What's on your What's on your mind? That mind? one, definitely. Um, I vivid I vividly remember being in San Francisco at one point and having one of the one of the founders of Heroku very dismissively and aggressively telling me that this lifestyle business was a joke and would never work, mm -hmm. uh, and we should take funding from whatever venture capitalist arranged for me to meet with this guy at the time. And it was just such an abhorrent, horrible experience, so manipulative and awful. And you could totally understand being in that bubble, why so many people feel like raising funding is the only thing um, that you, the only route forward, the only possible way you can do it. Because they really sell you hard on this notion that you won't be able to succeed. This is your opportunity. This is your time. You have to take this money so that you'll be able to grow the company. If you don't take this opportunity, you know, you're going to squander a once in a lifetime. They really, they sell you. Yeah. And at the time, you, you even if you have strong principles, you kind of, you're like, oh, fuck. But what mm -hmm. if they're right? You know, they're they they know more than I do. They have more experience. They maybe maybe I should listen to this advice. In hindsight, oh, I'm very <laughs> glad we didn't. I have similar memories from the uh, meeting that we went to in London, where we got told we could have pretty much a blank check if we swap the business model. Yeah, yeah. All we've of had that a pressure. Of <laughs> um, there are other smaller ones that that stand out over time. Uh, there, there were a lot of people who had very strong opinions about our architecture in the early days and I think the decisions we ultimately made were correct but the the big ones definitely people who told us our business model was crazy it is crazy but it's crazy mm -hmm. in a good way yeah yeah I was trying to think um, about if there, are, if there are any really good tech ones but well what so one that stands out from a tech point of view is I remember I can't remember names which is probably a good thing there were a couple of very opinionated people early on telling us that we should break everything out um from the ghost repository into submodules. and oh, yeah. your argument at the time which i still stand by stay and still tell people about today is that you can't break stuff out into submodules when you don't even know what the submodules are yet yeah we had we we use, we use ghosts as a prototyping ground we build stuff in a small monolith and then when it makes sense when we discover like here's a piece that makes sense to be a library or a module or something reusable then we pull it out into to be a dependency that can be uh distributed amongst multiple projects but it doesn't make sense to add all that overhead up front when you when you don't even know what you're building yet yeah i mean in terms of, of that sort of thing as well the other one that happened was everyone who came along and asked and and 
in fact, they contributed as well. So it wasn't just telling us that we were wrong, but put Postgres support into Ghost. Um, and then <laughs> <laughs> promptly left and left us maintaining support for both Postgres and MySQL and SQLite, which didn't work. And then we had to revert it. And in hindsight, it was a really bad idea for us to have accepted it, but we didn't really know that at the time. Yeah, that was a good lesson to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so Jordan, I hope I said this right, Koshi, Koshe, <laughs> could go either way. Jordan asks, uh, he says he's interested in both the macro and the micro. Um, how does the team handle products or project management, uh, especially given that it's remote? And how do we handle personal task management? What does a typical day look like? Good questions. Mm -hmm. We've been through so many iterations on project man and product management over the years. I think your isn't your motto to change our project management tool every six months? Yeah, to feel productive, you have to be completely convinced that the next project management tool you try is going to work and make sure you change it every six months when you get bored of the last one. Yeah, no, that's the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the moment, we've settled on um, trimming back all of our tools. So we use Slack, Zoom, and GitHub, and pretty much nothing else. But we've tried, yeah. uh, I can't remember what a lot of them are called. There's one called Flow or something? There was Flow, there was Basecamp, there was Asana, oh God, uh, Asana. Notion. Hmm. Uh, there was there Trello. definitely a few more. Oh, yeah, Trello, yep. Loads, um, but yeah. none of them, all of them eventually became a th yet another thing to check. And as soon as a couple of people stopped using them, then they dropped in value. The, what we really like about GitHub now is it's the, de it's the de facto thing. We're using GitHub anyway, so it's not yeah. like it's another thing to check. And um, it, it works for such a wide range of things. So it's just the kind of good default. That project board is a little bit of a mini Trello inside of GitHub, and it's just enough yeah. Just enough tooling, which is kind of like the agile mindset anyway, right? Just have just enough tooling. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of them, the other ones are so big and they've got so many features we didn't need and but don't do a very good job of just keeping track of what's open and what's closed. Yeah. Which obviously GitHub already knows. So. In terms of personal task management, uh, I'm a big fan of simple bullet journal style, just paper, pen, um, I find that easiest. It's the one thing that I can keep on my desk in front of me, uh, make a list and it's always there. I can't close it to switch apps. Paper is very in <laughs> fixed that way and that's useful. Um, slightly cliched, but it works for me. Yeah, similarly, I used a paper diary up until this year. This year I've been using just the Notes app on my Mac. And yeah. The nice thing about that is it syncs with my phone, so wherever I go, I've always got my notes with me. If I think of something I need to do, I can just shove it on there. It has checkboxes that I can tick off. I do miss yeah. the feeling of a pen on paper when I scribble out things I've done, though. <laughs> so Red, Red Davis wants to know, two years later, it's almost three years, actually. Two years later, what's, uh, what do we think about our move to Singapore? Um, overall, very good. Uh, moving to Singapore was, was a big change for us. We incorporated in the UK initially, uh, purely because Hannah and I are both English, but I don't live in the UK and most of the team doesn't live in the UK and most of our customers are not in the UK. So we decided to eventually move the business to Singapore in 2015. Um, mm -hmm. Gone very well, not without its own uh, growing pains or just pain points in general, as is anything in life. Uh, banking is certainly not as good as the UK. Um, there's a few more kind of admin hoops to jump through in general, 
Uh, we had to change accountants at one point, but we have a really, really good ones now. Uh, overall, very happy. Um, still think it was the right move for for us for a fully distributed team in an definitively not based in any one country. Singapore is a great place to, to make a home. Yeah, I completely agree that we made the right choice there. If we're going to do it again, I might look at, or if we're in the same position and reconsidering again, I might now look at New Zealand. I think New Zealand's a really interesting option. They have a massive amount of investment in tech. They've actually mm -hmm. just overtaken Singapore in the world rankings of best places to do business or ease of doing business. And they have um, really appealing uh, immigration options for people who are bringing technology and investment uh, to the country. And it's absolutely stunning place to live. But that's kind of my taste, so it won't be for everyone. No, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> uh, thoughts about raising funds or not from uh, Anshuli Gupta? I think we kind of already covered that one. Uh, I think there are lots of businesses where raising funding makes sense. I would classify those as capital-intensive businesses. Uh, so if you are making the next Tesla or the next SpaceX, it makes perfect sense to raise a whole bunch of money. You need it. You're making cars. You're making rockets. Uh, if you're making a to-do app... <laughs> The notion of taking venture capital is a little preposterous to me. I think it's better to find real customers and see if you can find a real business model. I don't have anything to add on that one. <laughs> I agree <laughs> I with you wholeheartedly. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I always find it funny. There's, there's some stat, I can't remember the exact, exact number, but Pinterest has raised something like 10 or 100 times more funding than uh, than SpaceX. I think SpaceX has raised something like 10 billion and no, that can't be right. I can't remember the numbers. You have to look it up, but SpaceX has raised like 10 times less than Pinterest. That I find makes that. no sense. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a good summary of the state of funding. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, so Dan Edwards at DE on Twitter asks uh, about building a profitable platform without funding. So given that there was no funding. How do we decide to, what do we decide to focus on in terms of money, business decisions that really helped? Um, and also tips for marketing a product from that point of view, if you're a developer rather than a marketer. Mm. So I think the thing that we, that we did in the early days, which really allowed us to kind of get to profitability was, was setting up on bare metal and doing everything in a very, very low cost budget way. We only had $5 per customer, right, to, to run their blogs. I'm not sure how we can turn that into tips, though, because it's really, really specific for us, what we did. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think there's lots of angles to this. We Ghost always started out with a firm business model in mind. Even right, right back to the very, very first blog post, there was a business model in mind. Um, wrote about how we'd have open source software and a hosting platform and the two would complement each other. So it wasn't like we came up with an open source um, piece of software and then had to figure out how to monetize it. I think that would have been more difficult. It was the two, the two kind of came hand in hand from, from day one. And it, from one perspective as well, we also had, we had the marketing first and the product second because your original blog post was what, what told us that there was a market for what we were building. And then the Kickstarter campaign was, okay, all of you people who read this article, if you really want this, put your money where your mouth is. So we exactly. then had a certain amount of money to get started and a certain number of customers that we knew we needed to serve because we obviously had to be able to support all the people that we'd promised free hosting to. So we kind of came at it backwards 
well, I think the right way around, but backwards to how most people do it, right? Where they've got some software and then they try and market it. Definitely. And if you, I would argue that everyone is a marketer to some extent. If you use products of any description and you know what you do and you do not like about those products, then the act of talking about what you've made and why people like you like it is in itself marketing. Um, now, of course, not everyone makes products which they themselves use. Um, if you are a 39-year-old man who's trying to market beauty products to 19-year-old uh, women, then you are clearly not the target audience. Mm -hmm. You might have to uh, have a more complex idea of what marketing is. But it, at its most simple form, um, marketing is talking about what you like and what you think is good about your own products because you're the one using them. And that's, um, that's certainly what we do is we don't try, well, we haven't up until now tried to do any real clever marketing. We've just tried to make a good product and talk about why it's good. Um, I think one really obvious area of marketing that we've missed out on that we're now trying to correct um, is one, using our own blog, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit embarrassing. Um, and two, actually thinking about the developer documentation tutorials, uh, educational resources around the, our own product as the marketing assets. So we know people are searching for how to install Ghost on X, Y, and Z platforms. We know people are trying to understand how to build themes for the first time. And really a lot of the way we're now thinking about marketing is in just creating the content that we already know people are looking for and that content having a long shelf life. Um, effectively creating a library for people to kind of discover and browse through, uh, which is what my friend Jimmy Daly would call it. He writes about this subject a lot. Um, I have a question for you then, based on this conversation and these questions. Go on. So if we say that we kind of, we went into this already having some hype and some marketing done because of the blog post that you wrote and then the Kickstarter campaign, how did you manage to get those things read by so many people and heard by so many people in the early days? That's a, that's a great question. I think a lot of people skip over um, that part. They just assume, you know, one viral hit is, happens out, out of sheer luck or chance. But no, that's, that's kind of a 10 years to overnight success type hmm. deal. You know, that old story. Uh, I spent the prior to go, spent the six, seven years before that, however long it was until Twitter came into being, um, building up a, a community of like-minded uh, people who I followed and interacted with. So the, to the point where I had, I can't remember how many at the time Ghost launched, but a good 12, 14,000 followers on Twitter, something around that number, purely as a result of writing blog posts, going to events, interacting with people, um, participating in that community. Obviously, contributing to WordPress was also a big part of that, um, being a part of the, the wider WordPress development community and all of those conferences. Uh, kind of grew that network in a very big way. So I had been a part of making blogs, blogging platforms, blogging software, people working in that space for a very long time before that blog post about the idea for Ghost was published. So it looks like it was just this kind of lucky hit that came out of nowhere, but there was an awful lot of groundwork with, with no payoff that kind of came before that. Um, and usually that's why I try and say to people is the the ideas you'll have which are which are best are the ones which you've already gathered the last number of years worth of experience around and understand best than anyone else. Because it's very easy to spot a gap in the market you don't understand. It's very easy to look at other businesses and go, well, there's clearly something missing there. Because you, you probably don't understand all the nuances of it. But the thing that you do every day, the thing that you spend all your time on, that's usually where you can come up with the best ideas. So kind of a long answer, but uh, I think it no, was I born out of that. 
think it's really interesting. But you also reminded me that when Twitter first happened and we both first joined up, do you remember that you and I had a competition to see who could have the most set followers? No, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's a couple of months where we were in competition. We were both trying different strategies to see who could grow our following base the, the best. You won, obviously, but... What, what, I, what I do remember in the same vein is that we both thought Instagram was ridiculous when it launched. Yeah. I, I'm Instagram user. My user ID on Instagram is 1,100. Like I literally signed up for Instagram within an hour of it launching. Mm. Um, my friend Ryan got the username at God. Mm. <laughs> but he, he later lost it somehow. I don't know how. But what I, what, <laughs> I remember posting lots of pictures of beer, like mm. taking the piss out of Instagram for people taking pictures of their food and yours is to this day if you scroll back on hannah's instagram is just people's feet <laughs> where somebody nicked my phone out of my handbag and just did that for laughs yeah oh i thought that was you no no <laughs> brilliant i was trolled nice um cool we should get on we're like yep. nowhere near these questions and we're already half an hour in uh alessandro was also asking about marketing Thank you for the question, Alessandra. I hope we answered. Um, Adam Howard and Ben Hutton both asked, how has our role changed um, from either how it was at the beginning to how we thought it would be? How has, how has it evolved over time? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. <laughs> so, I mean, I think mine is fairly standard obvious. In the early days, I was nothing but a code monkey. I was your code monkey. All I did all day was chain myself to my laptop with coffee and hope that I could code for 19 hours straight before I died. Um, and where I am now is much more um, managing a team of developers who are doing the coding, having the odd bit of coding project, usually things that are prototypal or aside from the main business and not fucking code quite so much, to, well, even at all. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's that thing where... When I when I uh, originally got involved in the project, I never imagined that at all. I never imagined the idea that I would be needing staff, leading other people to do their, to do work. And it's a, been a very fast evolution, which started out with the um, the original build of Ghost, where we had um, seven contributors who volunteered to help me build it. And suddenly I had this team of people and I was supposed to orchestrate getting them to do the things that needed to be done. And I had no idea how to do that whatsoever. I'd never done anything like it. Um, and just trying to come up with workflows and GitHub, make sure the specs were in place, figure out who was doing what, holding agile style sprint meetings and that kind of stuff. To where we are today, where we actually have a team of, of five engineers and all of them are under my charge and they all have different aspects of the ghost product and also the hosting platform to look after it's a whole different world and it's something that i'm still getting my head around myself i think yeah absolutely <laughs> i think the the maker to manager transition is um kind of name for it people have there's, there's a bunch of blog posts out there if you're interested a lot of yeah. a lot of people have kind of written about the the process of starting something working on it yourself and then slowly transitioning into managing other people who are doing who are doing it um and fighting in, the pull the fight when something needs doing fighting that pull of just doing it yourself versus delegating it to somebody else it's so challenging yeah I, th I think in terms of so what i thought it would be like versus what it actually turned out to be like start start there mm -hmm. uh you, you saw i think 
I imagine certainly that, that the whole point of starting your own company and uh, making your own product is to excel, to do the thing that you do, right? Which in my case is design and ideate and refine and, and all these, these areas of product design that I'm really interested in. And that's what I saw myself doing. And, and then what you learn pretty quickly is that the sheer amount of other stuff that you have to do um, gets in the way of that a surprising amount of the time. Um, the, the amount of late nights I've spent poring over reconciling the mm, <laughs> absolute <laughs> minuscule details of tax returns and I'm books. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, for weeks on end is, you know, I, I never would have imagined that that was the amount of of, of work and time that that would take. Uh, and that applies far and wide. Like you, one day you're happily coding away on something and you're like, oh, this is gonna be such a fucking great feature. We're gonna launch it on Twitter. Everyone's gonna love it. It's gonna be, they're gonna vote for it on Product Hunt so hard that the button's just gonna explode. And then someone says, so how is your uh, GDPR compliance going? And you're like, that's funny, what are you talking about? And they say, oh yeah, there's this whole new law, which means you're gonna have to basically stop everything you're doing and spend uh, all that moss or, you know, whatever fucking cookie law, whatever it is, you're going to have to spend all your time on that now. And you're like, hang on, this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for. This is yeah. ridiculous. I signed up to make my own stuff, not waste time with these petty laws, which are designed for Amazon and Google, not trying to undermine tiny people just getting a business off the ground. So, yeah, there's a constant war between trying to do the thing that you set out to do and then needing to do all the things around it. Yeah. I think you do have some control just to kind of address Ben Ben's specific question, which is that uh, this, no, this notion of what we're talking about now has always put him off starting his own company. I do think you have a degree of control over this in the sense that you can choose your path to some sense. So you can choose whether you want to uh, excel at being a product creator and hire management to take care of that stuff for you, or you can choose to move out of your initial role of being a product creator and kind of move up the the stack of, of figuring out how to run and steer a company. Both paths are equally valid, and and lots of people uh, choose one or the other. There are lots of founders who are not CEOs or CTOs, um, but who prefer being individual contributors. There's that. everyone, I think. But there's also um. The fact that you find new things that you're good at as you go, find new things that inspire you and interest you. And um, whilst I don't really spend that much time coding on Ghost itself anymore, the things that I do get to work on are prototypes for new products or new aspects of the product, new features, new areas. And, and actually, you know, I kind of benefit from that in that I get to noodle around with fun code whilst everybody else has to do the hard work. So it's always like, there's there's a, there's different ways there's different perspectives of how to look at it. Yeah, I think I think there's particularly for you there's quite a distinct difference between a VP of engineering type role and a, a CTO type role. Uh, yes. One is is very much running the ship and making sure everyone is doing everything on time, and the other is kind of building a new ship at the same time as steering the current one. Um, and they're very different roles. You kind of cycle between the two at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on what people need. And how things are going. Yeah. I get to do a little bit of both. I mean, right now I'm right. head of operations, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So Josh asks, uh, this is a good one for both both of us. Who is it om the Nederlandse taal te beheersen, maar er helemaal niks mee te doen? I saw this one, it made me laugh. <laughs> ja, grappig. Beetje zinloos, maar toch wel leuk. Um, Hannah and I both understand Dutch. I speak it a bit, I grew up there. 
uh, but neither of us use it in day-to-day whatsoever. And that was the question. Fun fact. Um, <laughs> Shabda Raj says, how much time and effort do you spend on building versus selling slash evangelizing? It's a good question. But I mean, basically none <laughs> selling slash evangelizing. We're really bad at it. We spend all um, of our time building stuff. Yeah, we spend all our time building stuff and then um, we will consistently build and ship features and not even write a blog post about the thing that we just shipped. It's really bad. The last two um, years we are... we've been terrible for that. We have shipped we... like the last, I don't know, what, eight months? How many features have we shipped that don't even, they've got like a, a footnote in some documentation somewhere. Yeah. Like multiple, multiple authors. Yeah, you can add multiple authors to your blog post now. So if, if a couple of people collaborate together on a, on a blog post, you can add them both. They'll both show up in the theme. They'll both show up in admin. It's great. It's actually a really cool feature. works. Definitely blog about that. Should do. So we're hiring for a marketing position. If you're <laughs> listening to this and you are a developer who is also interested in marketing, who's good at writing tutorials, go to blog.ghost.org. There's an open position. Um, would love to hear from you. Yes, very much. Uh, the other Lynn asks, are we ever going to do a spin-off company with $5 plans again? <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, if you want the reasons, check out the blog post. Bryce Evans is really interested in anything and everything around, uh, use, doing open source pros and cons, managing it, um, thoughts around open source as a whole. What do you think? Hmm. <laughs> it's the one that we often question the most, isn't it? About how open source has impacted our ability to um, make meaningful progress and also how whether the split between um, having the code base being open source and having the issue tracker also just be out there in the open yeah not really making sense anymore there's there's a lot here i feel like i feel like if i get started i'm going to go on a rant and so i don't <laughs> Uh, this this subject could probably take a whole podcast episode of its own. Maybe we should we should actually do that. But the, the, let's let's give a short answer at least. Um, I'd say open source is a mixed bag. Um, the philosophy of open source we obviously believe very strongly, and that's why why we do everything we do. Absolutely. Uh, the unfortunate reality of open source is that a lot of people don't really understand the philosophy. They see open source more as uh, something they're entitled to as opposed to something they participate in and that can be very difficult to manage so open source takes a lot of time and effort and often it feels like it takes that time and effort for very little reward ultimately i still think it's what's right and what's good what the world needs and that's just just enough to keep me going but i think the dynamics around open source as a whole particularly on github um, could be a lot better it just makes me really sad. It just makes me really, really yeah. sad when I open up my... I've got a specific inbox where all my GitHub notifications go and I open it less and less and less because when I open it, it is full of negativity. And yeah. that makes me really sad because there's no need for it. The way that people approach you when they've got a problem is from the perspective that we have done something wrong and we should yeah. be, one, jumping to their, to their needs and also grateful that they even took the time to let us know that we're terrible. Yeah. And it's, it's that attitude. It, it, it just, just completely unnecessary. If someone came in what has an issue, 
and did it from the the attitude of I found this problem it'd be lovely if we could fix it maybe I could fix it things would be so much easier to deal with and and I mean you talk about it all the time I talk about it all the time Nolan Lawson's blog post about what it feels like to be an open source maintainer the bottom line is it feels horrible and yeah. Um, and it's that it's that interaction which makes it sad. Having the code be open source, having people have access to it, having people clone it, fork it, uh, rewrite it in any other programming language. I think we've got rewrites in PHP and Go. Um, <laughs> that is all. I find that incredibly positive. It's it's you know diverse and it allows people to to build on top of what we've built. That's fantastic. It's the it's the interactions with the community people. aspect. Yeah, yeah, which is. Which is hard. I, I really think GitHub's a major problem here. I don't necessarily think it's open source itself. It's all of these problems are far more prevalent on GitHub now than I had experienced in the past on track or in self-hosted issue trackers. And I, I really think GitHub do a terrible job of managing this or of being a part of it or showing any interest in their own community. I mean, you just have to look over across the fence to YouTube, um, who aren't even a good example of doing community management. People chastise YouTube for how bad they are at it. But even YouTube have managed to, by and large, clean up the comments section. They've managed to create a sense of positivity and community amongst their creators. You know, you hit uh, 10,000 subscribers and you get a bronze play badge or whatever the fuck it is. You get crystal play buttons, you get gold ones, depending on, on how popular you get. They, they host huge community summit events where they fly everyone into New York and they just talk about what's happening in the video space and what's coming next from YouTube. And they connect all these different creators together and foster this notion that everyone who uses YouTube as a creator is somehow in it together. And everyone who watches and consumes content through YouTube is somehow part of uh, a wider trend or movement in media. And that's a really positive thing. And something GitHub could is absolutely in the same position to be able to do, but it doesn't seem to have any interest in doing it. We've, for example, never really heard anything. Uh, Ghost is consistently between the sort of top 20 to, depending on what language filters and so on you select, somewhere between the top 20 to the top 50th most repository ever on GitHub. Most liked um, Most starred. Yeah, most starred, yeah. And uh, the, the most we've ever had from GitHub is uh, we get a free account so we can have private repositories and uh, they extend us the occasional beta testing invite. That's it. Hmm. The, the interesting thing is the, how, how, <laughs> Hannah, how, these, how those communities grow up in certain spaces. So you look at Hacker, Hacker News as the obvious example of a, of a very, um, you know, negative community. I mean, negative is an understatement. I can't think of the right word. Um, <laughs> but on the flip side, you look at Product Hunt, and you, if you spend any time in the comment section of Product Hunt, there is nothing but love. Yeah. And it's, it's, it blows my mind how they can be so different when they're not that different in terms of what they do. And GitHub is another Absolutely. one, right? It's just another place where people can write stuff about products. These ones are open source products. And yet the stuff they write is negative on the whole. I mean, not everyone. There are there are good eggs. There are people around that understand this. But yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's, we could talk about this for hours, problem. couldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> we could. Um, and, you know, maybe we should revisit this. If you're interested in the subject more and talking about it or maybe getting some other people into this podcast we've never done guests before and talking about it um tweet me or hannah let us know um we'll revisit it but on the whole i want my gold octo kitty that's what i'm saying and i think github could do more yep. um 
Cool. Anthony, Barber, and Andrew Spooner, our friend Anspo, uh, both want to know how's it been working with remote teams, building a remote team over the years? Oh, um, this one's also like a, a mixed bag, isn't it? One that has both its pros and its cons. Um, yeah. I wouldn't change it for the world. That is the bottom line. Yeah. Would not change it for the world. But it's hard. Having um, everyone work together but in their own environment where they feel comfortable where they're able to be the most productive being able to control their their surroundings their work hours it, it's just it's just so much more i want to say grown up than working in an office where you're told what to do and i think i think both you and i were quite allergic to that environment which is why Massively. we don't we, we we're never going to start a company that has an office um you know, when I when I hear about my friends who are going off to their fire safety training or their manual handling training or whatever else thing that there is that they have to do because of the fixed environment and because of X, Y, and Z, it always makes me glad that we we don't have an office. Yeah, but then you tell them about the GDPR, which is the digital equivalent of a fire training yeah. drill, and uh, doesn't seem so great anymore. <laughs> no, I, I largely agree with with all of that. I think. Um, for all the good parts of remote, what's not remote teams and remote work, what's often not talked about enough is uh, people consistently dramatically underestimate the value of being in the same room when it comes to building and shipping uh, stuff quickly. Um, when we go on a retreat every six months for nine days, seven to nine days, and we have everyone in one room, uh, on those nine days, we will build and ship and successfully create more stuff um, than on any other week in the entire year purely because you can lean over to someone and say, hey, what do you think of this? Yeah, it looks good. And that's it. That's the whole interaction, which would normally be a pull request and a two-day review process. I mean, it's not that extreme. I'm, I'm kind of um, exaggerating, but it, it is in that realm. And everyone being in different time zones in particular is very difficult. Communication is, is difficult. Like Hannah says, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's still better than the alternative, but everything does take longer. Um, and that really can be a big challenge at times. I, I, I do think there is like, um, it's definitely true that we ship more when we're on, re on retreats, that's unquestionable. And it's definitely because we're in the same room. But there is also the added bonus of it being a very focused short period of time. Like when we get home from retreat, everyone is shattered, right? Like yeah. you can't do, if we worked in an office, we couldn't work that intensively all year round. That would not yeah. be, that would not happen. I think the thing that we miss out on the most being a remote team is the water cooler moments. It's the the knowledge that someone isn't feeling very well without them having to type out the words, I'm not feeling very well. Or, you know, that they've had a bad day or that they've had an argument with someone or all that they're in a really good mood, you know, on the, on the flip side, or that they've got some new music that they're listening to. We don't get any of that because there's not really a space for that in remote working at the moment. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, in a kind of similar vein about, you know, how our business structure works and does it work, uh, Kumail, who I know from Dubai, who's been in my videos before, and Paul Anthony Williams both ask, uh, what's it like running a not-for-profit organization? Uh, would you do again? Any unexpected challenges? Uh, I would say the most unexpected thing about running a nonprofit is five years ago, I naively thought that if only a company, if only an organization existed, which was not for profit, made open source software, was tra transparent in its financials, and just 
a socially good force in the world. If only that existed compared to all of the other competitors of, of ours in particular who have uh, some horrible combination of business models or bad software, um, then everyone would love it. Everyone would be like stoked, over the moon, um, amazing. The, the reality is most people don't care at all. Um, a lot of people don't even know, but even those who know, a lot of them just don't care. It's not, that's not what they optimize for, doing business with nonprofits or something or feeling socially involved. That's an absolute luxury. What they care is, is the product good? Does it work? Uh, do the service stay up? Uh, does customer support respond in time? It's not like we get 30 minutes of leeway by being a nonprofit organization. It's not even like we get any tax breaks. There's no tax breaks for being a nonprofit. Um, that, that's reserved for, for charities. And if you're a charity, you can't sell anything. So you can take donations and then you don't pay taxes. But no, we still pay taxes. So there's, by and large, being a nonprofit is a labor of love, which is important to us because we believe in it. But you shouldn't expect if you go down that route that everyone else will share in that belief. It's, it's very much something... It's almost a selfish thing. Help you sleep at night and feel good mm. about what you're doing as opposed to receiving lots of pats on the back from people who agree that you're doing a good thing. So it's, uh, it's definitely nuanced. Would I do it again with Ghost? Yes. With any other product or project? Probably not because it's, it's complicated. Uh, it's more expensive to do taxes for a nonprofit. It's more expensive and complicated to incorporate, do paperwork. Basically, everything is a little bit more difficult for a nonprofit organization and... Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think you get enough benefits. I think governments don't give uh, nonprofits enough benefits as a whole, which is really sad. It's, it's literally easier to start a for-profit corporation and do socially positive things than to start a non-profit corp uh, organization. So that was the unexpected part for me. Mixed. I wasn't expecting the nonprofit part to be so poorly understood, not just by like the general public, but by accountants and lawyers and bankers. Oh God! No yeah. one understands yeah. the concept that. that we are non-profit but not a charity. Yeah. It just, it just. Which is. Uh... It blows my mind. It blows <laughs> my mind that it's so poorly understood. I mean, it explains why no one ever does it because it's hard and not understood, right? So everyone just sets up for profit and assumes that that's how they're supposed to do it. Yeah, I, I think if I if I had to choose another business model today. Um, or sorry, another company structure, it would be a regular limited company, regardless, that would be a C Corp in the US or something, but I would look at B Corp, B Corp certification, which is an independent body, uh, which certifies that a company uh, holds profit on the same level of importance as environmental concern, uh, team health, uh, social responsibility. It, it's essentially a, a set of governing principles which hold a company not only responsible to its shareholders, but also to its employees and customers and the general world around it. I really like what they're doing. B Corp handbooks are very good read if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, they're all B Corps. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Kickstarter is as well now, actually. Um, cool. So let's see what else we've got here. Tech for Goodfellows says team. That's not a question. Uh, Lucas Morales wants to know about money, hiring, and culture. Um, covered most of those. Culture's maybe an interesting one to talk about. Um, we've, I guess we kind of evolved over the years. A lot of people talk about culture a lot, um, particularly in, if you read startup blog posts, you're kind of interested in being a founder or starting a company, and you, you come across all these blog posts about company culture, and it's all important, and inevitably you will come across Buffer's culture, because that's one of the most prominent popular examples. And, uh, and we kind of started out thinking 
okay, that's what culture is. And we need to come up with, you know, inspirational values that we communicate to the team and that's what we hold ourselves to. And, and that was okay. We did that for a couple of years. We had a document with some, some values, but they didn't, I think the measure of culture is if you actually use it to make day-to-day -day business decisions about who to hire, who to fire, who to promote, um, who to reward, what customers to keep, what customers to let go. Like if, if your actual decision-making is represented in your cultural values, then they are often not so fluffy. So we recently rewrote our handbook completely to reflect the actual values um, that we run the company with, um, which are not always happy and fluffy. They, they do include, number one value we have is, is humility. We're a pretty humble group of people who value a lack of ego above most things. But the number two value that we have is performance. We, we value high performing people and we value people who are gonna make us as a team stronger. And that's one of the most important things to us about running a team. So figuring that whole journey out um, takes time and evolves. And as the team grows and as team members change, it evolves. But it's, it's a learning experience along the whole way. I don't think anyone's got it figured out, but I would say that this area as a whole, the whole startup culture thing as a whole, is one which I think contains the most mm. nonsense in uh, startup advice. Like there, there's the most poor advice probably about how to do the culture of your startup um, out there on the internet. So I think there's more value in thinking about it carefully and, and uh, evolving it along with your own style and your own personality as opposed to trying to follow some uh, set of advice that's currently The reality there. of That'll culture is that it reflects the way that you and I behave. And, and, yeah. and you can only change yourself so much. There's only so many things that you can you know, rein in or change about yourself as, when you're acting as a leader or a manager, your natural personality will come out. And whatever your natural personality is, is what's going to rub off on everybody else around you. And you, you and I are both people who care a great deal about attention to detail and about performance and about, you know, making good decisions. And those are the things that we have yeah. evolved our culture into saying, hey, you know, actually, these are just the things that we value as a company. And really, that's that's kind of hitting the nail on the head. the The true culture of any company is is obvious. It's implicit, uh, even if it's not written down. It's it's already there. You can choose to write it down or not write it down, but the real culture is there, no matter what you do. Um, you can try and steer it to some degree with documentation, um, but largely, it's it's already there. And it's about whether you which areas of that you choose to celebrate and which areas of that you choose to change. Cool. Um, so, T-Lop. I was looking at the username to determine the real name of this person, but the username is Bert Wees. So, I mean, we could go either way on this one. T-Lop, Bert Wees. I apologize if I've mispronounced this. Uh, wants to know, building, how about building the company while traveling, working remotely, having a remote team, the lifestyle, how you work, how productive you are, traveling while working. I guess this one's mostly directed at me. Hannah has a very nice house in the UK. Um, I tend to bounce around remote full-time. Um, the answer to, I feel like our answer to every question is, well, it's a mixed bag, but please, let me tell you. Um, the, the answer is it's a mixed bag. Uh, so I tend to find traveling and working is entirely sustainable and works just fine, as long as you don't do it too quickly, minimum two weeks anywhere, but ideally, if you want to be really productive and build a company, be three months place to place. Don't move around too often. Um, 
you want to be in places generally which are a bit more expensive. Um, contrary to popular kind of nomad opinion, uh, you, you want to be in places which have very reliable uh, infrastructure, particularly internet, obviously. But you also, you really don't want to be screwing around trying to find food um, in the middle of a jungle you know, when you're supposed to be shipping uh, a feature. You, you want to have, you can move as much as you want, but you need to make sure that the, the kind of infrastructure around you facilitates ease uh, and convenience. Um, it's not as hard as you might think, in all honesty. If you, if you stick to places which are easy to travel to and you don't do it too fast, traveling and working works just fine. I think to pick out the part of that that wasn't necessarily about nomading, about having a lifestyle of a remote team, the most interesting thing about that for me is being able to work the hours in which I am most productive. Because, and then I know I'm not alone in that, even in our team. Some people just find that the 5.30 is the time when they get most productive. And if you work in an office and you're getting sent home at that point, the company is never getting the best you. There's always going to be an hour in the morning where you're not productive, where you end up sitting on whatever news website you like reading or Facebook or something, because you're forced to be in that place and you have to do something that looks like it's work, but you haven't got your brain with you for whatever reason. That's just how, how you know, that's yeah. just how human beings work. Whereas the benefit of sort of working remotely and managing your own time is, you know, knowing when it's not 11 o'clock in the morning and your brain just hasn't kicked in today, that it's probably better for you to go for a walk and come back and do some work at three o'clock in the afternoon. Yep, that's definitely a big benefit. It's, it's huge, because you get so much more done in the same amount of hours, just by doing them different hours. Absolutely. So Pete Carl asks about standing out. How do we do standing out? What are your thoughts? Hmm. Do we stand out? I think we do, but I would say not enough. Yeah, I think, I, think, I mean, we, we seem to have a pretty well-recognized brand, which is... Surprising to me because it's certainly nothing to do with me. I mean, looking at you, um, <laughs> and it's always surprising to me when people have heard of us and 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 that kind of the whole ecosystem part. We did certainly do a good job of standing out in terms of our non-profit, remote, open source, crazy attitude. But when it comes to actually genuine marketing and um, standing out from the crowd in terms of having it a first-class product, I agree. We don't we don't do a good enough job at the moment. Yeah, in general, I think the things that people like most about Ghost are precisely the things which make us stand out or which make us different from everyone else. Um, non-profit, open source, uh, having actual mission which is driven on values rather than profit, uh, or rather than financial targets. Uh, the people who are most engaged or involved in what we do and, and think it's good uh, precisely understand the ways in which we're different. And arguably, one of our biggest shortcomings is we don't do a good enough job about um, talking about those things or sharing them regularly in a way that is easily understandable by everyone. So I think we could, uh, yeah, we could work on that for the next five years. But we're um, we're hiring someone, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, ba -ba -ba. Andre Kravitz wants to know, when will we add native comments into Ghost? Probably in the next year. Bruce Lawson says, uh, want to know about community building and maintaining who does it, how much time does it take? I think we kind of touched on this with, uh, with open source. It's a real mixed bag. Um, I think there's not one person responsible for it. This new marketing role we're hiring for will uh, 
put someone more firmly into a fixed role there. But at the moment, it's uh, everyone is as involved as they can be on the forum, on GitHub, on Twitter, and uh, and try and participate in a in a fairly uh, unstructured way. In terms of the second half of this question was managing relationships with other open source projects. I guess that's uh, you could take that one, Hannah. Um. This one talks about especially competitors, but for us, the, the thing that we have to manage relationships with the most is our dependencies, um, where we yeah. are fairly active in terms of trying to um, put whatever spare time we have into helping out fixing bugs when we can. Um, and over the years, I have taken over more and more of, of those dependencies where they haven't been maintained as well as I would like. It's an, it's, it's a really difficult challenge because obviously our focus is on our product and the reason why you use a dependency is because you don't want to have to write that bit yourself. Um, but I think <laughs> as over time you end up sort of collecting them. When it comes to the competitors, I don't know if we have to do so much relationship management as we do attitude management. Um, some of our competitors and, and people who are fans of our competitors can be quite negative towards us and we always try very hard not to do the same thing back to try and respect our competitors for what they're good at. And what, like, like you know, you started off this course by saying, saying, you know, if you're, you probably might want to be on Medium if you are a personal blogger. We see the value that each one of the people in the, in, in the industry has. I think we also steer our own community in, in that same direction. Um, whenever, whenever someone shows up and says, oh, you know, fuck WordPress, goes so much better. Uh, generally, we'll say no. WordPress, fantastic product. It's good at lots of things. We're we're just good at different things. So, our strategy or the what we try and do with this is always to highlight the differences. Um, in when it's in terms of competitors, not necessarily in terms of open source ecosystem as a whole, but in terms of competitors, uh, the different products are good for different things. If you want the easiest setup experience possible go and use Medium. Maybe Squarespace, but for publishing, Medium, definitely. Uh, if you want the most flexible experience possible by just like clicking on buttons and not having to write a line of code and you're quite happy with kind of everything being a little bit messy but working pretty well, uh, WordPress can do almost anything in the world. Um, we try and sit somewhere in between. If you want something really configurable, powerful, uh, that's wonderful code and that runs like an absolute cheater, uh, that's kind of where Ghost excels. So usually we'll try and highlight the differences and steer people towards the right product for them. And, and quite honestly, that's a very conscious decision because we don't want all of the customers. We want the best customers. We want the customers who will most uh, appreciate Ghost, who will get the value out of it. If, if we try and convince someone that Ghost is the easiest possible thing to set up and they have a terrible experience. Um, well, okay, not only are they gonna be unhappy, but also that's gonna put a huge burden on our support team to answer that support ticket endlessly because the, the person who is trying to use Ghost really should just be using Medium. They shouldn't, that would have been the better thing to tell them is go use Medium. Um, and the other way around as well. You know, if, they, if it sounds like someone's going to Medium but we would be able to offer them more, then we highlight the differences and the reasons for why they might wanna use Ghost. So. That's my kind of take. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject area there in terms of um, when you're a customer uh, trying to pick the piece of software that fits you best and understanding that decision as well as being on the other side of it and being a product and understanding which customers are picking you and why and which ones should be picking you and why and making sure that you, you get the right, the right customers because one product can't make everyone happy. That's just not possible. Diversity is yeah. very important. 
Um, and it's, yeah, you know, absolutely. it's a little bit like the thing that we, we were banding around in office today to do with feature requests, how Basecamp have said, we're never going to add, we're never going to translate our user interface. That's never going to happen. So if you want it in Spanish, go and find another product. Yeah. And just being very honest and open about that. Absolutely. Okay, so we're, we're slowly coming to the end here. Um, there's one more one more question which we'll get to, but I want to throw a spanner into the works um, and ask my own question, yeah. which just popped into my head. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask you, and then and then uh, maybe I'll ask, give my own answer as well. But so we've we've had five years of building Ghost. We've we've built a lot of things. We had goals. They changed. What is one thing that you want to build in Ghost, or that you want us to do in the next five years that is not not currently in any way a part of our plans, roadmap, or something that we've talked about before? Oh, no pressure. no pressure at all. Um, I don't have one that's not in the plans. I think we've got everything that's on a plan somewhere. The thing that bugs me the most that we haven't built yet is um, having the API be properly authenticated so that you can actually use it. Because we've always had a JSON API. It's always been set there. It's always worked. We've not really done the work we needed to do to make it accessible. And that, to me, is quite sad. It is sad, especially as the number of things that would unlock is, is ridiculous. I mean, not even just in terms of external uses of the API, like you could write to Ghost with a desktop client or read from it as a widget on your homepage, but you could replace Ghost Admin entirely. If you don't like our client, you could build your own admin client in React or something completely different, or you could have uh, a completely React-driven front end of your site and skip our theming layer completely and uh, build that API-driven front end of the site entirely from scratch. That would Equally, be really cool. I wonder how it would have changed our architecture and our approach to solving problems if we'd had it from day one. Would we have been looking at Ghost more as being an API, which we then have other things that interact with it, as opposed to being a whole thing on its own? There's all sorts of questions there. So that's probably the one that's on my mind the most. But you've nice. obviously got an answer to the question, so what is it? <laughs> yeah, I definitely have one. Um, I want to see us, and we have no plans to do this at the moment, but I want to see us uh, solve some way of connecting all ghost sites together. Um, we kind of looked at it, looked at vague ideas of it a long time ago or, or tried to come up with what that might look like. Obviously, this is the big benefit of being centralized, being something like... Um, Medium or Twitter or literally any other social network is having all your users under one roof means people can follow each other. You can push notifications to each other. You have this this huge graph of which allows discovery of new content, which allows you to, to get organic traffic to your content without having to promote it, unlike the web, which is a bit hard to find stuff unless you know exactly what you're looking for. But there are some interesting things happening now. Um, activity ActivityPub as a specification has now been approved by W3C. Uh, we've got things like Mastodon, which are actively using it and are actually showing some promise. And there's a, starting to see ways in which you could have this Fediverse, this notion of, of federation of the open web, um, being more interconnected, being able to subscribe to each other uh, as a concept that might actually work and be vaguely understandable by most people. So, I, yeah, I'm really interested in that. Could, could Ghost sites uh, push activity to each other? Could they subscribe to each other in a manner outside of, you know, 
basic RSS. Um, that's something when we do our tenure hmm. podcast. I hope we've I hope we've done that. Fair enough. Cool. Uh, so last question from Andre in Bali. He wants to know if we were giving one piece of advice to anyone who is starting, um, presumably starting on building their own company, their own products, or trying to do something in any way similar to what we've done. If we had to give them one piece of advice, what would it be? So I think it's it would be to um, sort of be able to take a step back emotionally from the feedback you get from individuals. Because um, I think the thing that's probably um, the hardest to kind of get past, especially in the early days, is every voice that you hear that's talking to you, it, it's so novel to have people giving you feedback on your product. You feel like you have to take all of it on board and it can be very, very like emotionally intense. Like it's very, you take it all personally, right? It's, it's your product, it's your baby and you can't help but care deeply about what everyone's saying. And it's not to say that those people mm-hmm. are wrong or that the, uh, their opinions don't count, but you have to have some sort of distance between yourself and that and to understand that there will always be some voices that shout more loudly than others and just because they're loud doesn't make them more important. It also doesn't make them right. No, it doesn't. And often, but often it's the quiet voice in the corner that, that's actually saying the most sensible thing and they can get drowned out. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think mine, if I had to give my younger self um, one piece of advice, it would be to keep trying lots of different ideas. Um, one hang-up I had pre-ghost was uh, I didn't know what success looked like or what a good idea looks like so you know if you, if you don't know what one looks like then you, you just constantly assume that your next idea is the thing uh, that's going to be a big success because you've got nothing to measure it by how would you know if something is or isn't going to be a success if, if you don't know what that feels like so I spent a lot of time in all the projects I worked on before ghost and there were many of them and none of them worked um spent way too long working on each one of them because I was convinced that success was just around the corner um, and would brag, you know, we got 10,000 page views in month one as if that was a good thing. Um, the difference in finding real traction versus tr- looking for it is night and day. It's like it's like discovering true love. You, you don't really know what traction is until you experience it for the first time. And from that point onwards, it's the most obvious thing in the entire world. Um, discovering real traction for a product idea or a business idea is all-encompassing. It's people biting your arm off hundreds of tweets or emails. It's your inbox being full. It's uh, unequivocal desire to have the thing that you're proposing is going to be built or the thing that you're starting to build. Um, and once you find something that elicits that reaction in people, uh, put everything else to one side and focus on that. But until you get that reaction, try and cycle through ideas more quickly. Try and be okay with um, letting projects go if they're not achieving that kind of result. That's what I would tell myself so that I could Mm -hmm. have got to the good ideas more quickly. I have a slightly different version of this question. Go on. What do you think is the most important thing that you've learned in the last five years? Oh God, there are so many. Tell you what I think it what my, uh, my what comes to my mind for this um. is in the very early days of Ghost, you and I used to obsess over decisions because it felt like we were making them forever. 
Yeah. Like we would really, really obsess and we'd argue and we'd shout at each other and we'd, we'd get really upset about the fact that we weren't agreeing on something and it would feel like the decisions were so important. And the thing is that there are thousands of them, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of decisions that we have to make and some of them are big and some of them are small. But we used to obsess over every single one as yeah. if once we'd made it, there was no going back. And yeah. I think... Um, feeding into what you said about trying lots of different things, not even just ideas, once, even once you found the, the, the right idea. Um, we've learned to experiment more, to make a decision, try it out, see if it works, and if it doesn't work, do something different. Yeah. I think that's a great I think, point. I think that's the biggest change that, that's happened in terms of our workflow as founders, as, as the leaders, as the people making the decisions, is that we've stopped being precious about them. Yeah, there's there's a certain there's a certain safety that profitability affords you, or a certain sense of calm that profitability affords you. Um, and at a certain point, I think we we took a step back and realised uh, we can keep working eighteen hour days and stressing about every decision, but realistically, that's not going to really change anything. Like our growth is healthy, and when we work really hard, our growth stays healthy. And when we work slightly less hard, maybe more healthy hours and just do what we think is right without absolutely killing ourselves, uh, growth stays exactly the same. So being okay with that and calming down a little from the, uh, the franticness of trying to do all the things and make all the decisions perfectly is definitely a, a change over time. Yeah, but we were profitable after 11 months. It took us a lot, 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 lot longer than that to really feel that sense of confidence. Yeah, I'm not saying we're good at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, this we are an hour and 15 minutes in, so I think we should wrap this up. This has been our longest podcast today. Maybe in six months' time, we'll do two hours. Who can say? It's all mm. one big experiment. Ooh, how fitting. What a nice ending mm -hmm. to the show. Um, I think we should round off by saying five years into this journey, um, one constant bet amongst between Hannah, myself, and, and the rest of the team is we feel like we're just getting started. I know it's cliche, I know everyone says it all the time, but really in terms of what we want Ghost to do, um, it feels like we've barely had any time at all. Like, okay, we've just, <laughs> we've just done 1.0, we've built the absolute minimum set of features that we thought were gonna be done in the first six months. And now we can really start on the serious shit that's gonna be cool. <laughs> and, uh, and that, it's somewhat of a cliche, like I said, but it's also good. It's nice to have that feeling. It's nice to still be, um, excited about working on things because I think we've all worked on projects in the past where that was no longer the case. So feel very positive about Ghost Future. And importantly, we, we certainly wouldn't be anywhere today, uh, five years down the line, without every single person who's ever written an issue or a pull request uh, or a line of code in any of our repositories. We wouldn't be anywhere without the support and the community that is around Ghost, either on Twitter, on GitHub, or on Kickstarter indeed. Um, and most of all, the team that we've been very, very fortunate to, to build and to work with over the years, whether you were an early member of the team now doing other things or a current member of the team, the, the, the wider team beyond myself and Hannah is perhaps the most underappreciated asset that we have um, that people don't know enough about. Um, Hannah and I barely write code for Ghost anymore. The majority of it is written by Kate and Kevin and Eileen. You'll see their names on GitHub. You'll see their names and contributions list, but you won't necessarily be as familiar with them perhaps as you are with us. And they're the real stars of the show, as well as the people who 
you don't even see on a GitHub contribution list, um, like Sarah and David and Sebastian and um, people who've run all of our servers, all of our support, all of our operations. And then you've got people like our new head of design, Zemo, who joined us. He used to be the director of design for Prezi and has now taken over design for Ghost. And ordinarily, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see his name anywhere, but he is single-handedly responsible now for all of the stunningly good design, which is starting to evolve within Ghost. And as we get further through 2018, you'll see new releases, which we will write blog posts about, um, which have really, really nice UI refinements. And that's all thanks to him. So the team that we have and the community that we have are why Ghost exists. And um, I'm just incredibly grateful for that after five years. And I, I hope it gets even better in the next five years. It is always good, I think, to to take a minute out to sit that back and reflect on what we've achieved, though, because like you said, it, it always feels like we're just getting started. And I think it's always good to take stock and realize that, you know, yes, we're just getting started, but we've also come a long way. Cool. Well, that's it for our show today. And uh, we will see you next week.